can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, you might find. Good morning, and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us Mondays at 10 a.m. at prn.fm, and that's 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time, but we're global, so you have to figure out your time. Back shows on visionaries.podbean.com, and now you can download our new app for iPhone and Android Just go to the App Store and search on PRN, and you can hear whatever is on at the moment live, as well as uh, more and more back shows are showing up. And if you haven't done that, you can always just open your web browser. That's what I've been doing, and then I plug my phone into my car. So today I want to talk about books. Ah, ah, (laughs) just lost half my audience, right? (laughs) So, you know, I have this attitude about books, and that is um, I did a book on creativity. It's called Visionary Creativity. Highly recommended. You can get it on Amazon, Kindle or paperback, and you can get it on barnesandnoble.com. And I have a section in there on books, and in a way, a book is a, an individual person thinks about something that is of importance to them and may spend several years investigating it and then puts their thoughts into a book for other individuals to read and to come into touch with that material. And interesting point, one of the interesting points there is an individual person, and I think we're moving away from that. Uh, it's an Enlightenment idea <coughs> invented, <coughs> excuse me, in the uh, in the Middle Ages in the West, but highlighted with the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment, and maybe we're becoming something else. I've spoken about that in the past. I'll talk more about it. But anyway, books. So. I'm a big fan of C-SPAN books on on the weekend on C-SPAN. And, you know, rather than a 10-second or even two-minute soundbite about an issue, C-SPAN allows someone to talk for an hour. Usually they're doing a book reading in a bookstore. Uh, sometimes they're interviewed for three hours about their book. And... Somewhat, you know, we can find out about things in depth through books. Well, I uh, have a hard time reading. You know, uh, I go to bed. Should I read or watch a rerun of Big Bang Theory or now a rerun of Young Sheldon? <laughs> if you're into Big Bang Theory, you might enjoy Young Sheldon. It's about Sheldon Cooper of Big Bang Theory when he's nine years old. And I, maybe it'll take him, uh, you know, beyond that. But that's where the series is starting. And what's it like to be, uh, you know, a super bright genius kid <laughs> stuck in a world? 
And actually, it it doesn't make him as super bright as they might because then they wouldn't have any audience. People wouldn't relate to that. And But there's one point in Big Bang Theory where Sheldon uh, is going to hang out with Raj and Raj is trying to get him to stop bugging him. He says, here, look at all these all these numbers here from whatever, observation, uh, astronomical observations. Raj is an astrophysicist. And see if you find any anomalies. And Sheldon says, well, here's one. And Raj says, you're kidding. It takes weeks to find those. Oh, my God, you found one. And uh, Sheldon says, well, don't they jump out for you? I mean, don't you see all the prime numbers as red? <laughs> that's a genius. That's, you know, that's one of these people. And uh, often involves some synesthesia, which is mixing up of the senses. So we ordinary mortals, if we have to, you know, multiply a 10-digit number by a 7-digit number, uh, it's going to take some uh, pencil and paper and multiplications, and these people are going to just pop out the answer. And what they do is they see these numbers as, imagine, floating amorphous blobs of different shapes and colors. And, and the two blobs for the two numbers encounter each other and make a new blob, which is the new number. So... That's how they do it. There's a there's one of these geniuses. You might have heard of him. I not I don't remember his name, but he came to fame to show off some years ago. He went to Iceland. He knew nothing about the language, and the deal was he'd go there, live there for one week, and then appear on a morning interview TV show, speaking fluent Icelandic. In other words, he could learn Icelandic in a week, and he did. And he has an online course, which I took for a while, on how to do this. And he's basically trying to train you to be synesthetic. Uh, So synesthesia is you touch something, you see a color. Uh, You see, uh, you hear a sound, and you feel a sensation. In other words, it mixes up the senses. And in some people... This can lead to these extraordinary powers. My grandfather once described someone he knew who, um, when he got drafted into the military for World War I, uh, this guy could, you could take, say, a, anywhere between 50 and 100 pennies and throw them on the floor, and he'd look at him and he'd say, 67, just, you know, and now we can do that. You, if you have two, one penny, two pennies, three pennies, four pennies, you don't count four. You look and you just grok it. You can see four. Um, five, you can. Most of us can see five. Some of us have to see four and one or three and two. And six, eh, you now really gotta see four and two or three and three. Ten, uh, now it gets more difficult. Uh, but there are people who can grok very large numbers, you know, maybe 50 or 100. And one of the things, one of the problems I see in computer theory 
is why isn't anybody investigating how people do this? And even if we, us ordinary mortals, can't learn to do it, maybe we can teach our computers to do it. Um, so, you know, you have a, a first, uh, you know, Commodore 64 was, how many bits was that? You know, so there were eight bits and they went to 16 bits. And now they, the iPhone just went to a 64-bit chip. And that describes how much memory, how, much, how big a chunk of data it can get in one grok, in one grab. And maybe there's a way for it to get an indefinite amount in one grab, the way these people can in one grab see 67 pennies on the floor and not have to count them or see them in chunks of four and four and three and two and then add them up. <clears throat> anyway, uh, Sheldon can do that. Um, but if they don't talk about that on the show, either Big Bang Theory or Young Sheldon, because people would turn it off. They don't want to hear about that. <laughs> but Sheldon can do that. That's why. That's who he is. That's why he's a genius. Anyway, so I listen to books more than I read them. And here are the books I've just downloaded and I've just started. So I'm not going to talk very much about them because I have, but I'll go back to the ones I finished shortly. But I just downloaded The Sentient Machine. The Coming Age of Artificial Intelligence by a guy named Amir Hussein. And I think he might be Pakistani. I'm not, I'm not sure. He has some slight accent. And he's a big Silicon Valley entrepreneur, started all kinds of companies. And his companies do artificial intelligence. And he's an expert in it. And he did this book. Well, uh, I don't go out of my way for artificial intelligence books. It's not something I'm most interested in, although it's getting there. It's really getting there. It turns out it's what they do with neural nets. I just, oh, I just got one of these books that presents, you know, if for <laughs> it's not an idiot book, but it's one of those kind of books where it presents ideas very simply with drawings. <laughs> so I just got one of those books on neural nets because um, I took a course in computer science long time ago, there was a computer science department in my school. They decided in the 1990s they better get rid of it because computers were, you know, not going to be a big thing. So my school got rid of computer science. But we had the oldest computer science department on the East Coast, older than MIT's, until we got rid of it. Anyway, it was actually, it was around 1984 or 85 I took the course because I remember the, we used Pascal which is a computer program that's sort of like C. Um, it's structured unlike BASIC, but it's you. nobody programs in it. A few things are programmed in it, or used to be, but it's mostly used because as you follow through the textbook, you're learning the architecture of computers. You're learning computer science. It's structured that way. Well, we didn't do neural nets. And neural nets is how all this stuff is now working. You know, like Siri can actually sort of understand you uh, on your iPhone or the um, uh, when you when you call, you get that very annoying thing. I stuff you call and you're getting 
press one for this, press two for that. Uh, please tell me what you're calling about. And I usually start screaming at it, operator, operator. <laughs> and, and it actually helps because they, they, the sophisticated ones are made to detect distress. <laughs> so as soon as you start exhibiting a lot of distress, they'll say, please hold. We'll try to find you an operator. <laughs> anyway, um, so I heard Amir Hussein on C-SPAN over the weekend and talking about artificial intelligence, and he was really had insights. One of the things to understand is, um, and and he was he quoted Stephen Wolfram a lot, and Stephen Wolfram does a good job of this, and so does uh, Neil Gershenfeld, but. Stephen Wolfram likes to say, when they, when, when they ask, uh, will we find intelligent life in the universe? And he says, how do we know we haven't already? What is intelligent life? If we, maybe we're misunderstanding intelligence. If, if intelligence is computational processes, well, things are doing that all the time. How does a tree make a trunk and then limbs and then branches and then twigs and then veins and leaves all in the same pattern? There's, it's, you know, calculating how to do that. And uh, uh, we actually can replicate that. So, for example, the fractal program makes a fern. Uh, boy, is that convincing. Uh, and then <clears throat> the if you look at uh, special effects in moving there, mountains, uh, that's fractal software that makes those mountains. And because that's how nature makes the mountains, with the same rules that are in that fractal software. And it's those um, it's those rules that that nature is using to make mountains. And there's a famous quote that the inventor of fractals is Bernoit Mandelbrot. And uh, look up the Mandelbrot set. And actually, um, Hussein showed that on his C-SPAN show. Oh, uh, actually, easier than reading the book. Uh, you can watch the C-SPAN talk. So anything that's already happened on C-SPAN is available in their archive to watch online. So A-M-I-R, Amir Hussein, H-U-S-A-I-N. And so if you look him up, the book is uh, The Sentient Machine. And so Amandelbrot is this curly thing, very arabesque, and... You can zoom in on it. Now, zooming in on it, looking at it in more detail, uh, requires a lot of computing power. They've now zoomed in on them on computers to a point where the whole Mandelbrot set is larger than the universe. So that's the kinds of things we're playing around with these days. And he talks about that and relates it to uh, AI. He starts with his cluster headaches and the book. So I just started to listen to it. I'm not far enough into it to really talk about it. But he goes on to uh, his doctor. Oh, I just happened to read this paper. Maybe this treatment, uh, you know. He says, what if I hadn't had that doctor? What if he hadn't seen that paper? What if we hadn't decided to try it? I'd still have these. He says, people commit suicide who get these headaches. It's how bad they are. And then go on for a month. So um, anyway. So, you know, it opens with a grabber. Really good book. I'll talk about it after I finish it. And now we get to something interesting. 
12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos by Jordan B. Peterson. Now, um, Jordan B. Peterson just came to my attention. He's, uh, in the past year, he exploded on the scene. I think this book is like number one bestseller on Amazon, uh, you know, the moment it was released. So it's a big deal. I want to try to have him on the show, but I'm probably not the only person approaching him. Uh, I need to find really important people while they're still obscure. (laughs) Uh, We have had some great people, and we've got some coming up. One of them is David Deutsch, who's pretty much the inventor of quantum computing. And he said he'd do the show sometime in May. So we'll be getting back to him. Anyway, uh, Peterson is a psychologist and pretty much a humanities professor. And a few years ago, he decided to put his lectures online. And he does things on cognition, things on psychology, brilliant statement of how we perceive you know, this whole stimulus response model of psychology is just, forget it. It's so wrong. I mean, it's one of the great sins of psychology along with uh, their other sins. <laughs> I mean, a field that gave us behavioral psychology, what a disaster. How many people's lives are destroyed by that? Gave us Freudian analysis, which still has big problems. Anyway, he's a psychologist And he started putting his lectures in various series on the Internet. And there's one I was just listening to on the Bible. And he goes through, you know, what is the book of Genesis telling us? Why the serpent? What did it mean that Adam and Eve fell from grace? What does exiting the garden of the ending of innocence mean? What are we moving into? Well, I'm a huge Joseph Campbell fan. We've done a couple of shows on Joseph Campbell. Go to the archive. And um, um, there are not as many Joseph Campbell lectures as there should be on YouTube. But go to Joseph Campbell Foundation, JCF, josephcampbellfoundation.org. And you can find his lectures there for purchase. You can also get them on iTunes and probably other places. But anyway, um, uh, Jordan B. Peterson is a lot like Campbell in the way he analyzes this stuff, very influenced by Carl Jung. And then something happened. Uh, His first book on, I'm not remembering the title right now, but it took him uh, 15 years to write uh, researching why, how we make, how human belief systems work. And he's a big student of um, of Stalinism and Nazism and what made people fall for these things that were so destructive. How do human belief systems work? Well, he says he sold 500 copies, if that. And, you know, that's what happens with academic books. And then... Uh, Canada passed a law mandating how you use pronouns. So, uh, he, him, she, her. Uh, what are you going to say? The caveman nursed his baby <laughs> in the cave? Uh, oh, 
the caveman nursed her baby in the cave? Or is it cave woman? Uh, and then, you know, we have the thing with cave person. Well, we're totally comfortable with that. We don't say chairman anymore. We just say chair. I'm the chair of the curriculum committee in my in my school. I don't have to say chairman or chairwoman or chairperson. It's just I'm chair of the committee. So it's doable. And uh, in my in my latest book on vision and creativity, I struggle with this because you know okay. The artist is very concerned with how his work is perceived. Okay, there's a problem, and I won't, I won't say that. So the artist is very concerned with how his or her work is perceived. Well, that just—you put that in a book, and it starts looking awkward, particularly when you get he or she found his or her lunch— in the cafeteria, you know, it's like in the, if they're in the same, it's just awkward. So some people alternate, you know, one chapter's he, one chapter's her. It always throws me. I find it disorienting because I'm reading along he, 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 and then her. Well, wait a minute. We just introduced a new character. Who's her? I got to go look back. Where'd that come? Oh, they're alternating. Uh, well, that's no good. So I just use they. Um, now, you can use the plural. You can say artists are concerned with how their work is perceived. But that lacks the concreteness of the artist. Um, there's kind of a concreteness when you're not, it, it, to, to you know one specific. So what I do is I say the artist is concerned with how their work is perceived. Now, that's improper alignment of plural and singular, but as I have a whole page on this in the back of my book, uh, you know, explaining what I did, and it ends with saying we await our usage gurus to figure it out. But what um, uh, I, what a lot of people say is uh, Shakespeare and the Bible do it. Use that they, uh, the plural they for singular. So uh, that's what I do. But it's still, you know, so anyway, the Canada passed a law saying not that you have to use they, but you have to use the pronoun of preference of the person you're addressing. And it's like a $100,000 fine if you don't, and a $200,000 fine if you deliberately don't, if they've requested it and you don't. So you're addressing someone, you have to ask them what pronoun do they request and then use it. He says, this is ridiculous. This is a violation of the principle of free speech, which is foundational to the success of modern culture. And it's that free thought and free ideas and or certain words we don't want to say. And he's fine with that. But he says, this isn't prohibiting words. This is mandating what you say. And what are they going to do next? Mandate what you think? And so he says this on a radio show, and he gets ambushed by a whole bunch of some of them are transgendered. And this is mostly the purpose of this law is mostly to help transgender people so that if you have, say, you're a teacher and you have a student and they're changing from whatever we say male to female, they want to be addressed as 
she and her instead of he and him. You're supposed to do that. Okay, fine. Uh, But he objected to this. So he gets ambushed by these demonstrators and gets into an argument with them. And the argument gets very heated. He gets a little heated, but he never loses it. But boy, is he articulate. I mean, total control of presenting a thread of coherent thought. I just love how articulate his threads of thought are. So anyway, um, that video went viral, and he's now (laughs) a bestseller. (laughs) He gets hundreds of thousands of views of his videos, and his book is uh, in some category. I'm not sure all categories. It's showing it a little strangely in Amazon, but it's pretty much the number one bestseller on Amazon at the moment. So more about him when I finish his book, uh, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. <laughs> Rule number one is stand up straight. <laughs> and so he's got his, you know, his advice is uh, clean up your room. <laughs> Take responsibility for yourself. And liberals are freaked out. He's now uh, a bad guy. He, uh, a lot of postings equate him with Hitler for... Um, uh, proposing individual responsibility. (laughs) So we're in a time of weird political correctness. When I finish the book, we'll go into it and uh, talk about it. Um, There's a a book, another one I just started, an extended summary of Tools for Titans by Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss wrote a book called The 4-Hour Workweek. How to work four hours and still be successful. And mostly the book, it was a very interesting book. He couldn't get it published, and then it became a mega bestseller when he finally did. And summarize the book in one idea. It's suppose you want to drive a Lamborghini. So you have to, you know, work hard, learn computer coding, uh, uh, create a new online service. Uh, start a business, launch it, and then sell it to Facebook, and then you have enough money to buy a Lamborghini. And he says, well, what do you want? Do you want to drive a Lamborghini, or do you want to bust your butt for 10 years creating a company? No, I just want to drive a Lamborghini. Fine. Go to one of those services that needs someone to drive a Lamborghini across the country. <laughs> you can drive, and they'll pay you. <laughs> So keep you think like that, like I want to travel. I want to go on cruises. I want to go to exotic places. Well, I haven't been getting the work uh, recently that I wanted, but I lecture on cruises. Go to lecturesbylobel.com and you'll see my lectures. So I, I get to go free on a cruise. You get a double room so my wife can go. They pay our airfare. We went to, we flew to Italy for an Adriatic cruise, you know, from Venice. And the only expense on the whole trip was <clears throat> we had to pay uh, her airfare, which was 200 bucks round trip to Italy from New York because they're in the, you know, the cruise ship is in the travel biz. They get a discount. So um, now we get, I get a free cruise. So Tim Ferriss's book is about that, how to get what you want and, and without having to do all the stupid stuff like make money, <laughs> which is a lot of work. Anyway, 
He wrote a, a book, The Four Hour Body on Exercise, The Four Hour Chef. These are really in depth research books. Uh, for example, he uh, goes to, uh, I think, Brazil or Argentina or something, and I think he got a woman there, and they enter a tango contest and they win. <laughs> he had never tangoed before in his life. You know, he says, he doesn't, there are ways to do this, and his book is about it. Well, this book, um, Tools for Titans, is how mega successful people do it. And what are their recommendations? So that's on my list. We'll talk more about that when I finish. I'm in the middle of Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. And very interesting there is how Leonardo, um, I always picture him as an old man. You know, because he was older. <laughs> Obviously, he wasn't always older. But he was uh, older than Michelangelo and <clears throat> Raphael. So I have to say the three biggies are Leonardo, Michelangelo, and Raphael, the big Renaissance artists. Um, obviously, Leonardo wasn't always old. He was young. And this book describes him when he he was young, beautiful, muscular, Blonde, curly hair, wore uh, colored robes, uh, was always in demand, gregarious, made stage sets, put on plays, recited poetry, the best lute play, made lutes, but was the best lute player in Florence. I mean, on and on. That's not the Leonardo uh, we knew. And when Isaacson gets interviewed about this book, other people say the same thing. Oh, you know, I never thought of that Leonardo. So... Uh, highly recommended. Um, and I'll just mention one more and then go to books I've finished. Uh, and that is The Know-It-Alls, The Rise of Silicon Valley as a Political Powerhouse and Social Wrecking Ball. And it's about Google, Facebook, not about Apple so much, Google, Facebook, Twitter, those kind of, and maybe some some extent Amazon and what they're doing, how it's affecting the society. And it's written by Noam Cohen. Excuse me. <coughs> Noam Cohen's a New York Times um, journalist. And he um, doesn't like what's happening. Doesn't like what these companies are bringing about. And is um, I uh, just started the book. I find uh, I'm going to be blunt here. <laughs> Hopefully he's not listening. Uh, I find a lot of it distasteful. The kind of, okay, there's a, an issue in politics. And actually, Peterson brings this up. If you want to talk about what's right and wrong with our society today, uh, well, you got to compare it to something. And... People, and there's no limit to what we can improve, absolutely. But in saying our society is horrible, terrible, the worst ever, that's done by comparing our society to uh, an ideal socialist paradise. Problem is that ideal socialist paradise never existed. What existed was Soviet Union, Red China, uh, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Albania, uh, East Germany, 
which was a horror story, you know, as a police state. Uh, every socialist country, where we get in it right now, Venezuela. Venezuela is a, has more oil than Saudi Arabia. It's the richest country in the world. And their people, you know, have eaten all the zoo animals, eaten all their pets. They're starving uh, due to what this imaginary uh, economic system that's being imposed on them. Every time it's tried, it's a disaster. But we compare ourselves to that ideal socialist paradise. Uh, instead of I comparing ourselves to every other society that ever existed, including ours 100 years ago, including, you know, whether it's Rome or Egypt, ancient Egypt or whatever, um, it it uh, stacks up uh, stacks up pretty well. Well, um, Jerome, uh, where do I have it here? Hang on, losing track of this book here. Hang on, here we go. Uh, Noam Cohen in the Know It Alls is uh, talking about how, well, these companies aren't making a better society. And so I was at a seminar with him. I raised my hand and I say, you know, what about, uh, for example, Peter Diamandis Singularity University? And Singularity University is for rich uh, CEOs, you know, to uh, uh, a week. To, I don't know the exact prices, but you know, roughly you go there for a week of intense um, uh, whatever projects and lectures, and it's $5,000 or $10,000. So, you know, that's nothing for a CEO or a, a top executive. It's, a, <laughs> it's more than I can afford. But the uh, project, each person will do a project, and the project will be <clears throat> what can you come up with that will improve the lives of a billion people? You know, one of them is, um, what's his, Dean Kamen, uh, designed this. This is not a singularity project, but he's, it's this kind of thing. Dean Kamen designed something that's the size of a dorm room refrigerator, can run on any fuel, including cow dung, and can take sewage and turn it into medically pure, medically injectable water at two cents a liter. Uh, so... You know, that'll help the lives of a lot of people. Number one cause of disease and death in the world is dirty water. So, you know, there's something that'll help a billion people if he can get it to work. So that's an example of the way these people are thinking. Well, um, uh, Cohen dismisses that. He says that's too abstract, you know, to, what are you talking about? We should all be Mother Teresa's? That's great for Mother Teresa. But what if some of us don't do well, you know, tending to the ill in hospitals? Um, so he rejects that. Well, I find that uh, I don't like it. I don't like his position. But I got to finish the book. I can't really, when I really get up in arms about a book, uh, these days, you can write an extensive review for Amazon, and people will see it. <clears throat> and uh, but I, you know, I can't do it till I finish the book. So, working on that one. So, some books that I did finish, uh, going down my list. What I did was I went to my library, 
<coughs> on um, on Audible, audible.com, where I get my audiobooks. And I just printed out uh, about 40 pages of my back books. Now, um, I am informed by our engineer here that you can return books and then you get a free credit for another book. So I've got to do, I do that. I don't feel good about doing with books that I, but there are some books that were duds. So I got to start returning those and get more credits. And also, there are sources of free audio, audio, free audio books. And I forget the name of the ser- service, but just go to Google and put in free audio books. And what they do is <clears throat> they have all they have the classics, you know, like all of Sherlock stuff that's out of copyright. Sherlock Holmes, um, Mark Twain. Huck Finn and um, um, Tom Sawyer, that kind of stuff. And so, and then they get volunteer readers. Well, some of those volunteer, you you get to appreciate the professionals. (laughs) That uh, most of Audible's readers are really good. I mean, I love the, um, oh, At the Existential Cafe, Existentialist Cafe, beautiful reader, woman with a, a British accent, Sarah Bakerwell. Oh, that's the author. I'm sorry. Um, don't have the reader here, but oh, here we go. No, don't have the reader. And the Leonardo da Vinci book is a wonderful reader. And he's fluent in Italian because in talking about Leonardo, all the people he interact with are Italians with Italian names. So beautiful Italian pronunciations in that book. Anyway, where was I? Let's get to my next book here. Uh, <clears throat> Tom Wolfe, The Kingdom of Speech. So Tom Wolfe is a perennial favorite, came on the scene in the 60s. He's in his 80s now. <clears throat> came on the scene in the 60s as a pioneer of the new journalism, which is kind of very... Um, oh, you know, detailed descriptive of everything going on around the main subject, and often with a lot of humor. The uh, other most prominent new journalist is Hunter S. Thompson, who came on the scene with first with uh, a book about the Hell's Angels, forgetting the name of that one. Maybe it's just the Hell's Angels. And then he did... Uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is a total classic. And um, and then Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. <laughs> it was so long ago, I forget which candidates it was running at the time. Uh, but it might have been Mundale and Nixon or something. I don't know. And But, but you know, he, yeah, you don't know where he's making it up and where— <laughs> You know, he goes into what drugs they're on and stuff like that, which is, which is. Uh, then he all, then the, then the newspapers call up the other journalists. How come you? We don't have the story about him being on that drug. <laughs> well, Hunter S. Thompson made it up, and you're supposed to be able to tell the difference. Anyway, Tom Wolfe was a pioneer of the new journalism, and he wrote for New York Magazine first for. The, the New York Magazine began at, was originally the magazine section of the Sunday New York Herald Tribune, 
which eventually went out of business, but it was the New York Times' main competitor for serious New York newspaper. And it's his first books are essays, candy-colored tangerine, what is candy-colored tangerine streamlined baby or something like that. And he writes about the people customizing cars, and he writes about drag races, and then he writes about Las Vegas. I didn't know. I mean, Las Vegas was—I would never have occurred to me to ever go to Las Vegas. It was just tawdry. And then, oh, my God, Las Vegas is cool. You know, pop culture. you got to go to Las Vegas. And he wrote about yuppies in New York and stuff like that. And then he did— the right stuff. And that really put him on the map. Just saw the just saw the movie on TV about a week ago, uh just flipping channels and you know, really great movie. Uh really great book. Anyway, the King of Speech is challenging uh okay. Noam Chomsky begins his career by challenging B.F. Skinner's notion that Speech is learned behaviorally. Uh, in other words, step by step, you hear, you imitate, you make mistakes, you're corrected. And Chomsky says, no, we we just jump into speech with both feet. We're, you know, right away, within months, creating totally original sentences that we've never heard before. He says the mind, the brain is predisposed for speech. And and then he even, you know, suggests that that presupposition uh, is on between whatever, you know, three months and two years. And you learn 99% of all you're going to learn about, let's say, the English language in that two years. And then after that, it's really difficult. <clears throat> so I recall two years of French in high school— Three years of French in college, because I didn't have French in my last year of high school, so I failed the exam. I had to take French one. Uh, and I still can't speak a word of it. Whereas, you know, some some three-year-old kid or two-year-old kid who comes here from or comes to Paris from another country running around in the street picks up French in a, in, a, in a, you know, two months. And fluently. So, uh, you know, why is that? And Chomsky thinks about that. And he says not only is the brain structured in a certain way, but it presupposes it's structured in a way that all grammars have the a similar underlying structure. He calls it deep grammar. At the same time, um, uh, Charles Darwin talks about the evolutionary origins of speech. And in this book, The Kingdom of Speech, Tom Wolfe debunks both of them. Now, he's probably wrong. Um, no one else has picked up on the book. The reviews are a bit hostile. But Tom Wolfe is such a delight to read. So, highly recommended. Um, music as a Mirror of History. And that is uh, a great courses book. I used to get my great courses. They're usually 20 to 30 half-hour lectures. And I used to download them. from. I 
buy them from the Great Courses website. I originally got them on cassette tapes. <laughs> I literally have been throwing all my cassette tapes away. What else are you going to do with them? Um, you know, I'm not going to spend hundreds of hours transferring them to digital. I'll just buy them again on, um, on uh, <laughs> you know, and then all these throwing away thousands of CDs of music. Uh, anyway, um, music is a mirror of history. This is this guy, I think it's Greenberg, and I'll uh, maybe I'll try to interview him sometime. He does the incredible lectures on music, goes through you know the history of music, and pretty much starting it starts earlier, but in music he'll start classical music, start with the Middle Ages and come up to you know Stravinsky, in thirty lectures, and. He'll go into detail of, you know, it's sort of like um, a popularized version of a composition course. In other words, what is a Viennese symphony? How do you write one? How do they structure it? First, you lay down a, a position. Then you lay down a counterposition. And then the two interact. Well, if you take a course in composition, you'll learn how to do that. And you have to write a symphony. You have to compose one. And you've learned the rules. Well, it's not that detailed, but for the interested lay person, which is me, I don't, you know, I know nothing about music. But I took violin lessons for, you know, two months, and my father says we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> you obviously are not cut out for this, uh, but the for the person who just wants to understand stuff, you know that TV series How Stuff Is Made. You know, it's just fascinating. How do you make a, an electric drill? You know, something like that. See how it's done. Anyway, um, uh, he approaches music that way. And this one, music as a mirror of history, relates the music to what's going on in politics and culture of the time. Let's say, um, let me check that off because we're not going to get much further. And I want to pick up uh, next time when we lay off. Uh, what do we? Oh, flourish, a visionary new understanding of happiness and well-being, by Martin Seligman. Really interesting stuff. Uh, Seligman is the inventor of a field called positive psychology, and he says uh, psychology has been pretty much a study of what goes wrong. You know, uh, if you're a clinical psychologist, you help people. Well, <laughs> that's pretty, you know, going to be pretty depressing most of the time because the people who come to you for help are the people who are in trouble, the people who can't get it together, the people who have demons running around in their head, and they dump that all, on the, all onto the shrink. And he's got to deal with, what, five, six, how many of these a day? And, boy, I must be wearing. I was had, uh, yesterday I had coffee with a a um, social worker. And he specialized in something in particular. But what a rough profession. He had previously worked in child services you know, you go into a home, a kid's being abused. Now what do you do? You leave the kid there, it could get killed. You take the kid away and put them in a foster home, 
uh, that's usually pretty bad experience for the kid. Foster homes just don't work. Uh, so what, what are your choices? What do you do? It's how do you be a social worker when you're faced with that all day, every day? Anyway, uh, so Seligman starts by saying, okay, that's what psychology was about. But how, what, what, how about happy people? Or I don't like the term happy. He doesn't either. How about people who flourish? That's the name of his book. How about people who do well, perform, do what they want, get things done, are satisfied with their lives? Uh, what, what makes them that way? No one ever studies that. They always study, oh, you know, <laughs> let's study serial killers. I mean, serial killers are probably the most studied type on the planet. They get a serial killer who's in jail for... Um, you know, for life, and the uh, and who's articulate? Uh, boy, are they they're booked up every day with somebody doing their PhD thesis or writing a book or whatever, interviewing them, and they are thoroughly studied. Well, how about studying normal, successful people, or don't want to use the word normal either, uh, flourishing, successful people? So that's what Seligman did. And in so doing, he founded a field of positive psychology. So he's at the University of Pennsylvania. They have a whole big department. And Angela Duckworth, who I've mentioned before, I'll mention her again, who wrote the book Grit, we'll get to that on our list uh, eventually, is also there. He brought her in there. And so they try to study that and try to help people become not just get over their problems, but become flourishing successful. So strongly recommended book, Flourish, by Martin Seligman. Now, all these people, Martin Seligman, you don't want to read the book? Uh, go to YouTube, get a half-hour lecture. You get the whole thing. Let's see what else. Oh, a couple of um, outside of what we've been doing. Uh, she by H. Ryder Haggard. And the next one is... Uh, on my list is Raymond Chandler's Farewell, My Lovely. So she is the greatest adventure story of all time. And again, I'm, I'm, I know the story. I might have, uh, there's, there was a movies, maybe more than one movie about, about it. And H. Ryder Haggard also did King Solomon's Mines, which was a, a very uh, well done 1950s full color movie in which they go off to Africa uh, his his hero is what's his hero's name? He shows up in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, but anyway, in she, it begins quietly. You know, in the in the apartments of a don at Oxford or Cambridge. I don't remember which. And uh, somebody with you know tuberculosis, coughing fit, drags a chest to this old don and says. Uh, you're going to keep this for me, and you're going to open it in X amount of time and adopt my young nephew, you know. And then the young nephew grows up, and it's time to open the chest. And in there is the story about 
being shipwrecked on the coast of Africa and being picked up by these horrible, you know, ape men creatures who are ruled by this beautiful woman, she, <laughs> who's a descendant from, you know, going back to ancient Egypt and rules over this inner kingdom in a hidden away, darkest Africa. And they, you know, adventurers go there and encounter her and on and on. So, it's often booked as the greatest adventure story of all time. I think that's pretty accurate. Well, I might talk about that if I finish it, but I just know the outlines of the story, uh, H. Ryder Haggard. And then my mother's father was a mystery writer. So mysteries are sort of in the family blood. He would do, uh, he and... Dashiell Hammett, each with a half a dozen pseudonyms, would do would fill up Black Cat and Black Mask magazine every month. And my grandmother, his wife, saved all the his stories. I got to maybe scan them and get them published someday. But now that self-publishing is really easy. But she she tore off the cover. She tore out his story and put a a pin through them. A sewing pin through them. This is before paper clips. <laughs> I realized paper clips were actually invented, uh, and they didn't exist in the twenties or whenever the, 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 he did these stories. So I once contacted a woman who owned a mystery bookstore. I think it was called Murder Inc. or something like that in New York. And uh, I was talking to her about this, and she says, "If your gra- grandmother had kept." The entire magazine, not just you know the cover and the story, uh, we could both retire. <laughs> Maybe she was exaggerating, but gee, I wish she'd kept the entire magazine. Anyway, so I'm into this. My my parents wrote a a mystery, the shadow and the blot, and you can actually get it because all you know, it never got beyond hardcover, but used books are always available online. You can find it. But anyway, that makes me a Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler fan. And Raymond Chandler, I think I like his short stories better than the novels. But Farewell, My Lovely is probably the best novel. And I've been reading his short stories. They're not, they're not very much available on audio, but that's something you can actually read. Whoa, boy, what writing. Anyway, uh, so I figured I'd do one of the novels Farewell, my lovely. And then one more before we wrap up. So uh, I got it on my list right here. Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance by Angela Duckworth. So it's um, Angela Duckworth is really bright. And she starts off after her stellar academic career working for a consultant. I think it was McKinsey. So, you know, they do high-power, high-paid work for major clients. And then she leaves that to go teach in an inner-city school. And then she left that to go get a Ph.D. in psychology. And now she's a professor at University of Pennsylvania. Well, she comes up with a... A uh, very unpleasant observation. Uh, you know, the kids in inner school are not doing well. Um, whose fault is it? And she says, maybe we need some more perseverance. So uh, who knows? Um, and so 
She studies people who succeed, particularly quarterbacks, uh, special forces, military, people like that, and the best of the best. And then what they do to, you know, they're in a competitive world where they're up against the other best of the best. And so what does it take to persevere like that? The power of passion and perseverance. And it's, if I can ever get her on as a guest, I've emailed her, but she hasn't answered. Um, I have a disagreement here. I have nothing against these people. And this is wonderful. And yes, it's needed. But there's also a kind of um, laid back questioning. Do I really want to succeed at this or is this really the right thing? What if you question uh, the um, prevailing whatever rather than uh, excel at the prevailing whatever? And I think that that kind of, how shall we say, the world needs both. And so when, if and when we get Angela Duckworth on the show, we'll talk about grit and perseverance and its important role. Uh, the book was a big bestseller. She was on everything, you know, promoting it. Again, get her, get her online on YouTube. So this is John LaBelle. Let's wrap it up. This is Visionaries. Tune in next Monday at 10 a.m. And see you then.